and please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 John chapter 4. We'll look at verses 13 through 21. The text is also printed in the bulletin. Um, 1 John 4, 13 to 21. This uh, text will be, uh, the language of it will be very familiar to you, probably. In fact, uh, this is starting to feel a bit of the repetition here. Very similar things have already been said in John's letter. Um, uh, so it tempts me to feel like a broken record when I'm up here uh, week after week. This, this letter is uh, it's kind of uh, like that. It's cyclical and it builds on um, previous ideas by a lot of repetition. But the purpose of the repetition is, uh, is not just to say the same thing over and over again, but um, it's to have sort of a contemplative... Um, clarity, like an emphatic clarity about what he's trying to communicate, um, John is saying that you need to get this, and I would, I would say you need to get this, right? You need to get this way down deep. Uh, you need to get what John is talking about here, and um, I feel like you're almost getting it. <laughs> I feel like maybe you're almost getting it. Um, so we're, gonna, we're just going to talk about some more of the, the things that uh, he's talked about. We will focus uh, in particular on... Um, sort of uh, what is um, not so repetitive about uh, the middle verses of this passage, verses 17 and 18. Uh, that, that's kind of what we'll focus on this morning. But um, we share, in general, kind of universally, we share a sense of innate, uh, an, an innate sense of worth, of meaning, Everybody knows that life has meaning, even though we try to convince ourselves a lot of the times, and scholars and thinkers try to convince us that, uh, no, there actually is no intrinsic value to humanity. There's no tr- uh, intrinsic meaning. There's uh, no such thing as truth with a capital T. But we, we have a sense that there really is, right? We, have, uh, uh, we share an innate sense of truth and goodness and beauty and purpose and dignity we may not share an innate agreement on a definition of these things. Right? Come to actual concrete agreement about what the, the purpose of humanity is, the purpose of your life, the meaning of your life. Uh, we may not share that, but these things are generally pretty well acknowledged as uh, universal, uh, universally experienced by humans. And uh, the Bible says that our sense about these things, kind of that innate sense that we have and that we share about these things... Um, uh, it corresponds to, to reality. The Bible confirms that for us. It says, yeah, the way that you feel about meaning and goodness and truth and purpose, um, but that lines up with the way God really is and the way things really are as he has made them. And, um, and along with this comes some, some sort of shared innate knowledge of future judgment. Some sort of uh, feeling or sense that we all share that uh, because there are things like meaning and purpose and truth and goodness, there's some sort of judgment on that too, right? We do have uh, that. We share that. What, what we have done with our lives, what we have done with the human, the dignity that we've been created to have in God's image, what we've done with the truth and, uh, and with goodness and beauty and purpose, what, what have we done with those things? We're going to be judged on that. 
We do have some kind of a nagging sense of that in our subconscious, don't we? Um, I think we all also share a basic fear to the answers to those questions. What have we done with that? What have we done with our lives? How am I uh, lining up, measuring up against the purpose for which I was created? And uh, you ask that question, and there's some sense of fear that we all have, the way the judgment's going to go on that. Um, The Bible says that fear, fear of judgment, is the natural state of people who are separated from God. And that's everybody by nature. Um, By nature as sinners and rebels against God, we are separated from God, and so fear of judgment is a natural state for us. The Bible also says, uh, from cover to cover, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of the judgment. You don't have to be afraid of God. We can be forgiven. We can be restored. We can be set right. We can even engage in the original purpose for which we were created. We can do that. Um, And the answer to that dilemma, the answer to to our questions and our fears, the answer to it is uh, love. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, uh, particularly from verses 17 and 18, uh, we'll look at the perfection of love, we'll look at the fear of judgment, and then how love expels fear, how love casts out fear. The perfection of love, the fear of judgment, and how love casts out fear. So let's pray, and then we'll read what John has to say about these things. Father, we're glad that uh, we're not simply reading what a mere mortal has said about these things when we read John's letter that uh, we are reading your very word, divine supreme truth given to us through the words of the prophets and the apostles in the scriptures. And so we're glad not to be left in the dark about, um, about who you are and about the way that we're supposed to have relationship with you and the way that we're supposed to live in this world as those who have been brought into relationship with you by your grace. We pray that you would make it uh, real and true to us in our hearts and in our minds by your spirit, that you would use your word now to uh, lift us up and transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the perfection of love. Uh, talk about our love. That's, that's what um, this uh, passage 
is about, to some extent anyway, it's about our love. Uh, By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Um, Our confidence before God can't ultimately be grounded in our love, the way that we treat each other, the way that we respond to God, the way that we love God and love our neighbors. Uh, Our confidence before God cannot be ultimately grounded in that, but it is somehow linked to that. It is somehow linked to our love. Our confidence before God um, is somehow linked to our love, and so we should consider what our love looks like. Last week, um, uh, we talked about this. Actually, we've talked about this kind of thing several weeks in, uh, in 1 John, but, um, but last week we mentioned that, that God loves us by enabling us to love as he loves. Right? That God loves us by making us to love like he loves. And um, that's, that's what it means, the perfection of his love. Uh, it's, it's his love working through us and, and producing our love, right? So um, his love is free, it's majestic, because he doesn't need anything from those that he's loving. He doesn't need others in order to love or to be loved, because God is love. God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who uh, have dwelt in perfect love and perfect communion from, it, from all eternity. And so before anything was made... Um, before we were made in order to receive God's love and to be conduits of God's love to each other. Before that happened, God loved fully and perfectly, and he was loved fully and perfectly. So he didn't need us, uh, and his loving us is not to get something that he needs. He doesn't love in order to get something, uh, which is actually something very familiar to us. We often love in order to get something from those that we're loving. But, But real love perfected love, our love, when it looks like God's love, when it looks the way it's supposed to be, the way it's intended to be here, uh, is, is self-sacrificial. We don't love in order to get. We just give. We give ourselves. It's self-sacrificial, self-giving um, for the true good of the other. And uh, you, can, you can see that uh, throughout uh, the letter of John and throughout the Gospels. But here toward the end of the passage, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, this visible person with tangible, visible needs that I can meet, that I can give myself to, if you say that, um, that you love God but you don't do that, well, that, you don't know what love is. You haven't, you haven't come to the, the conclusion that, um, that love is giving yourself for the, for the other. Right? So if you don't love people who you can see and meet their needs in a way that uh, then, then, then you can say all you want that you love God, but you don't know what love is yet. You don't know what love is. And this is his commandment. The commandment we have from him is that whoever loves God must love his brother. Right? So the love for God, if we have a real, mutual, perfected love for God, it has to express itself in our love for our, our, our brother. And particularly, he's talking about uh, love within the church. Right? Uh, as it says in uh, Galatians, we're supposed to uh, love and be at peace with all people, but especially we love and take care of those who are uh, of the community, the household of faith. Right. So this is not to exclude the concept that we're supposed to love everyone, but in particular, if we say we love God, we're, we're supposed to love the people of God. We're supposed to love uh, our neighbors in the church, uh, and that means giving of ourselves, not just um, loving them in order to get something. So Tim Keller, the book that we're reading for the home group, Generous Justice, uh, talks about this a lot, and actually the passage that we're going to talk about, uh, the, the chapters that we're going to talk about later today uh, are particularly uh, applicable to this, um, this text. But Tim Keller says that, um, 
You know, love looks especially like social justice. Love looks like um, social justice. It looks like moving toward people who are especially uh, marginalized, people who are outcasts, people who are oppressed, people who are poor and suffering. Um, Love, in, in the biblical sense, looks like that. It looks like social justice. And it looks like uh, moving towards these people with real care, right? with real hospitality, inviting them into your homes, uh, real ongoing support until they get back on their feet if, if they're in a, a hard spot, real, real generosity. Right? That's what love looks like throughout the scriptures, is giving ourselves, giving our time, giving our resources, giving our love to people uh, in order to, to provide for them the, the kind of home and care and, um, and support that they need to flourish, not just survive, but flourish as human beings. And, uh, and God's people have been constantly running up against this as something that we just don't do well, right? Uh, throughout history, um, particularly here in Isaiah 58, uh, is a passage that's uh, very important. And Isaiah and all the, the prophets really are uh, often speaking out against God's people, against God's people for the way that they have neglected this kind of justice, this kind of love, this kind of moving out toward those who are marginalized or oppressed. Uh, God's people frequently neglect uh, the true love of others and do so while claiming to be religious, while claiming to be spiritual, while claiming to uh, love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength even, right? Uh, we do this while claiming to be in a right relationship with God, and, um, and so we, we don't understand the fact that religious activity, real spiritual health and vitality, looks like love for people who are in need. It looks like uh, real justice being done in their lives, and in Isaiah 58, God brings this out and he says, isn't this the fast that I choose? Isn't this the real religious activity? Isn't this the kind of thing that's going to demonstrate whether you are, um, whether you have a vibrant, vital relationship with me of love? Isn't this what I want? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So spiritual love, the way God says it, if you're going to love me, if you're going to have a real relationship with me, it's going to look like this. It's going to look like justice. Uh, it's going to look like social justice. And that shouldn't surprise us because justice, you know, it's tied to the law. The law is given um, so that we would treat each other uh, the way that we're meant to treat each other as those who bear God's image. The law and righteousness and justice is meant to, to help us to treat each other that way. And uh, several times in the New Testament, it's said that love fulfills the law. Love sums up the law, right? So love looks like social justice. Love is treating others who bear the image of God as those who bear the image of God deserve to be, uh, deserve to be treated. Right? That's what love is. And the early church did this uh, and, and effectively, at least temporarily, at least in their community that we have recorded in the scriptures, they, they effectively put an end to poverty. Uh, 
They did this and they put an end to poverty because they loved one another. Um, it says in Acts 4, one of these um, summary passages that you get every once in a while as you go through the book of Acts that says uh, how great things were in the early church that we all strive for and we wish it would be like that in our church, right? Um, <clears throat> there are real indicators that God is at work in, in these communities, that he's really transforming them by his grace. And here's one of these. It's in Acts 4, uh, 34 and 35, where it says, there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So they, they loved each other. They took care of each other in a way that actually it eradicated poverty from their midst. Right? Um, we have the opportunity to do that. Uh, we have the opportunity to do that in our love. But how well does this describe our love? How well does it describe our love? I mean, I, I think to some degree this church is doing pretty well. We take care of each other in a lot of ways. Um, but how well does this describe your love? How do you, your love. Um, or how have you done with hospitality? Uh, the sort that Jesus commands is the, the, the kind of hospitality that is expressed by somebody who knows God, who's been loved by God. It looks like this. It, it doesn't look like inviting your friends and family over all the time. It doesn't look like inviting people over with whom you have a natural affinity. It doesn't look like inviting uh, wealthy people who will be able to really appreciate the finer things and make you feel good about your hospitality and uh, return that favor to you and they invite you over to their place next week. Um, hospitality, the way that Jesus talks about it, the way that um, real spiritual love expresses it, uh, Jesus says you're supposed to invite the poor over, those who can't pay you back, right? those with whom you have no natural affinity, the people that um, it might be a, a difficult time just for you to put up with them. <laughs> right? Uh, there's, there's no kind of natural reason why this person should be in your house except for um, except for the love that expresses itself in justice, it's kind of moving out towards those in need, moving out towards those who are marginalized and giving of yourself, even though they can't repay you. Right? Um, that's what love looks like. How Have you done with that? Have you, have you ever done that? Have you ever had people over that, that weren't just good friends? Or I think we instinctively know that... Um, you know, if the judgment is to be based on solely, solely on our love, solely on how well we match up with this description of what love looks like, then, uh, and, and if the judgment is to be based solely on our fulfilling of our created purpose as human beings, then we're probably in trouble. Right? We're probably in trouble. If, if judgment is based on me, if based on my love, my expression of love in these terms, we're probably in trouble. We have that instinctive fear. So secondly, we talk about the fear of judgment. <clears throat> uh, verse 18 says, fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear has to do with punishment. Uh, and, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love, this is not saying... If you're afraid of God's judgment, it means you should probably love better. Try harder. Be perfect in your love, right? You really need to shore up your weaknesses in this love thing. It's not saying that. If you're afraid of God's judgment, you haven't loved well enough, you should just try harder. 
It's easy for us to think that, but it is not saying that. Uh, We fear the day of judgment. We fear the day of judgment because by nature, we're in rebellion against God, and we know uh, we've we've committed cosmic treason, we've been traitors to God, we've been traitors against, we've we've betrayed our own created nature, right? The, The created purpose of our lives, we're traitors to love, and instinctively we know the judgment that awaits traitors, right? Instinctively we know that judgment, and so we're afraid of that judgment, um, and uh, Handel's Messiah is uh, something I've been listening to a lot recently, and there are a few of the songs, I guess if you can call them those, it's all taken from the, the scriptures, um, a few of them in a, in a row where the, the prophets are quoted, and there's a prophet from Haggai too, it says, thus saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, yet once in a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And Malachi 3, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Who shall abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand? He's like a refiner's fire. What do you hear when you hear verses like that? If you've heard that song, what do you feel? Uh, We've read those passages in the scripture. What do you feel when you think of the fact that Jesus Christ, uh, when you think of his coming into the world for judgment, what what do you hear? I think instinctively we have a sense of dread. The Lord coming into his temple for judgment? Shaking the heavens and the earth like a refiner's fire, who can stand? These are not um, intuitively pleasant thoughts for us, I don't think. And our response, we could have several responses to this kind of fear of uh, impending judgment. Um, We can have a response of paralysis and depression, just kind of giving it up, because what are we going to do? Uh, we can have the response of trying desperately to ignore the reality of this, just push it way to the back of our minds and pretend like it's not really going to happen. Um, or maybe more commonly, I think uh, this kind of fear motivates us to really get our lives together so that we can make the cut. Right? Fear motivates us to live well so that we'll make it through the judgment. Judgment's a pretty serious thing, so I better be a good person. I better love as close to perfectly as I can manage, right? As close to perfectly as I can muster. And most people would probably say that the best people, if you're supposed to be a good person, right? I want to be a good person. Everybody wants to be a good person. They think that's going to help them through the judgment. What it means to be a good person, the best people are those who love, Right? That's, that's really the highest and best form of goodness, right, is, is to love. And so we're supposed to do that, aren't we? That's what fear drives us to. You were made for love by a triune God who is love. That is the purpose of your creation, and that's your eternal destiny, is love. But the best that we can muster, apart from confidence in God's grace, the best we can muster from fear as a motivation to make it through the judgment uh, on our own, is, is imitation empty love. That's the best that fear-driven uh, motives can muster. Fear-driven love is false love, right? It's, 
It's the appearance of love for the sake of the self, for the sake of self-protection, for the sake of self-preservation. What we try to do with our fear-driven imitation love, <clears throat> trying to make it through the judgment on our own two feet, that kind of imitation love is, is, to, uh, is to gain a sense that I've done well enough, that I'm okay because of me, because of my actions, because of my love, right? <clears throat> That's all we've got, isn't it? What else do we have? Salvation by our own goodness is all we've got. Even, even our acts of love performed for the good of others in Jesus' name can amount to this fear-driven imitation love. Jesus doesn't let that stand for one minute. He says it's one of the scarier passages in the Scripture for most of us. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he's talking about the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will de declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this is to say we can be, we can be fooled about whether we're in with Jesus because we live a good life. We're doing things for his sake that are good and benefiting other people. Things that look like love. Things that look like social justice. Things like delivering people from oppression of demons, you know. In the name of Jesus himself doing these things. And that, that's not good enough? That's not good enough for Jesus? <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be. He doesn't let that stand. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And uh, someone I know... He's been a Christian probably 15 years, um, had a dream early in this person's uh, life as a Christian, a really vivid dream of Jesus saying this to them, a really vivid dream of Jesus saying this to them, and it struck fear into their hearts, and it's something they return to regularly, um, this fear that on that day, what I did, it doesn't match up with what God wanted, it doesn't match up with what Jesus says is going to get me in, right? That Jesus is going to cast me out because I wasn't good enough or something, right? So the fear of judgment, this is a common experience for a lot of us. It just settles right in. Right? The fear of judgment, we don't even think about it. It just settles right in, and we try to learn to live with it because really what else are you going to do, right? It's just always there in the background. What else can we do but hope that our love, our fear-driven imitation love, uh, ends up being good enough to get us through the judgment. And the judgment will be, in a sense, related to our love. It will be, in a sense, related to our love. It's not grounded, ultimately, on our love, the judgment that we receive on that day, but it is related. And Jesus says this in a bit of a long passage, but I think it's worth reading every once in a while anyway, uh, from Matthew 25. He says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people. This is the day of judgment, that Jesus Christ himself is the judge. 
He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So when you love the brothers, the least of the brothers, right? When you love the brothers, you love each other with the, the, the perfected love that's supposed to come from a heart that's made right with God. When you do that, the day of judgment will be a day of good news for you. Not because of your love, but because of what your love indicates about your relationship with God, that it's already been established, right? But if, you're anything, if you're anything like me, your fears latch on to this passage, and you have a hard time getting past that second paragraph, right? And suspecting that that probably talks about you, right? My love doesn't cut it. I don't visit the poor or the prisoner. I don't clothe the naked or feed the hungry, if you're anything like me, your fears latch onto this passage and you have a hard time imagining the consolation and the joy that Jesus is extending to you in this passage, in this, uh, this illustration of the judgment. How can we stop living in fear? How can, we, how can we stop the fear? How can we be perfected in love? How can that really be true of us, that we would be the kind of people who live like those sheep that Jesus welcomes with open arms, right? How can we have assurance that's the real question. How can we have assurance and confidence for the day of judgment? How can we know that we are made right with God in a way that produces this kind of perfected love in us? That's the real question. Uh, Tim Keller says uh, in his book on generous justice uh, that based on everything the Old Testament teaches about love and justice and everything Jesus says about it, that believers should be opening their homes and purses to each other, drawing even the poorest and most foreign into their homes and community, giving financial aid, medical treatment, shelter, advocacy, active love, support, and friendship. And Jesus did not say that all this done for the poor was a means of getting salvation but rather it was a sign that you already had salvation. The, the sheep who loved and visited and nurtured and cared for the least of these, and in doing so cared for Christ himself, um, they were surprised 
at Jesus' judgment because they weren't doing that. They weren't doing those things in order to be saved. They weren't doing those things uh, from a heart of fear, you know, fear-driven kind of motives in order to be good enough for the day of salvation. They were surprised at the judgment that Jesus made. And that's an indicator that he's not saying that you do this stuff, you love, you become a good person, you become a giving, generous, just person in order to get salvation. Rather, you do those things as a sign that you already have salvation, right? So what, what is that? How do we have that? So thirdly, how love expels fear. It's not your love that expels fear. It's not your love being made perfect that gives you confidence, that expels fear. Your love is an indicator that you have confidence. If it's real love, if it's love that looks like God's love, then it's an indicator that you have confidence that's based on God's perfect love. And as long as you look at yourself and you're trying to judge yourself by your own love, wondering whether you're good enough to make it through the judgment, as long as you're doing that, you're going to fear that you're not good enough, and that's true. Because you're not. And your love is not perfect enough to bring you through the judgment. And that's why you need to get your eyes off of yourself even off of your own love as the ultimate grounds for your confidence before God. There's a song we sing um, that uh, John Donne wrote, an old English poet. It's a hymn to God the Father. And he says this in the last verse, I have a sin of fear that when I've spun my last thread, I shall perish on the, th- on the shore. But swear by thyself that at my death, thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. I'm afraid that at the end of my life, I've spun my last thread, I'm on the shore, I'm on the brink of eternity, and I'm going to just die. I'm going to die under your wrath. That is my deep fear. And, um, and the solution is that God would swear by himself that he would have grace, that he would have mercy, that Jesus Christ, his son, uh, and it's actually son, S-U-N, like the sun that's in the sky, would shine Uh, would shine and his mercy would dispel all of our fears. And there it is. It's that lingering, nagging fear in the back of our minds that when we stand before the throne, we will be dismissed to the left. And the solution is that God would assure us of his grace. Assure us of his grace through Jesus Christ. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So we need God's perfect love. We need to be assured of that. And our confidence is based on the assurance of God's gracious love. It's promised to us, and it's demonstrated to us in the incarnation. And everything changes when, um, when Jesus was sent into the world to be our Savior. It says the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That changed everything. It changed our concept of judgment. It, changed, it, it drove away all of our fears. It showed us what God's love really looks like. And his love is perfect love. It changes everything so that now when we listen to Handel's Messiah and we read those passages about judgment, uh, you know that, that, that portion in Handel's Messiah is not talking about the second coming of Christ uh, when he comes as judge, but it, it's talking about his first coming. The judge came to bear the judgment. He came into his temple, and the day of judgment was the day when he was hung up on the cross, and he suffered the judgment and the punishment that we all deserve, that we fear we're going to receive because of who we are and what we've done, all of that judgment was poured out on the judge himself 
Um, he took and he bore the judgment we deserve, and he did it to grant us the judgment that he deserves. And the judgment that he deserves is a good one that he shares with us by his grace. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's good news. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's good news. That, it's hard for us not to read that with fear. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, is public confession, Jesus talked about this kind of thing uh, in his ministry. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father in heaven. We can't get past the fear of that, right? Have I confessed him? Have I acknowledged him? Have I done enough? Um, or am I the kind who denies him and that ultimately will be denied before God? But this, this can be a joyful prospect for you. Imagine it in these terms, confessing Christ before men and publicly acknowledging uh, him as the Son of God before men. A lot of you are married. Think about what it was like uh, shortly after you were married, shortly after you were united to somebody who you delight in, who you love, who brings you a lot of joy, who you have this beautiful relationship with, you're celebrating your new marriage, and you uh, are walking with your spouse into a public situation where you've got friends that they don't know, and, and you introduce them, and you publicly confess and acknowledge, this is my wife. This is my husband. I love this person. We're together. That's what it means to confess Jesus before men. It's, it's not this fearful thing that you need to imagine like, oh, if I do that, people are going to reject me. I probably don't do that enough. Jesus is probably going to reject me and get caught up in all the fears of it. Think of it as a de delightful thing that it truly is because of your union with Christ. You are united as if in a marriage to the one who's the savior of the world, to the one who's the son of God. So imagine the joyful prospect that it can be when you consider the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you when you consider publicly confessing him before others, right? It says in verse 16 and 17, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because... Because as he is, so also are we in this world. As he is, so also are we in this world. As Jesus is, so are we. And this is the foundation for our confidence in the day of judgment. It says, because this is true, we have confidence in the day of judgment. What does it mean? It's the vicarious humanity of Jesus Christ that is ours because of our union with him. Like you're united to your spouse on a deeper, more profound, more lasting level, an eternal level. You are united to Jesus Christ in such a way that whatever is true of him as the perfect human being, whatever is true of him throughout his life on earth, throughout his death, throughout his resurrection and his ascension, even now, everything that's true of him is also true of you because of your union with him, because of that vicarious humanity, that relationship that we have with him. He is our savior because everything that's true of him is also true of us. 
as you trust in him, as you put your faith in him, as you have a relationship with him by his grace, through his spirit. He is your savior because what's true of him is true of you, right? It it means that as Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life of love, his love was perfect. And as that is true of who he is and was, so that's true of us because we're in him. We are in him, so it's true of us. It means that as Jesus, who's the holy judge himself, he already suffered the judgment that we deserve for our cosmic treason as he died on the cross in our place as a substitute for us. If we're in him, we've already passed through that judgment. The day of judgment has already come for us. It means that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so also new and everlasting life is ours. His life is ours through our union with him. It means that as Jesus is right now in heaven, welcomed by the Father forever, so also we live as those who are accepted by God. We live as those who are accepted by God in this world. As he is there, we are here. But it's true of us because of who he is and what he's done for us and the fact that we're united to him by his grace. It means that as Jesus has absolute confidence, absolute confidence that can never be shaken, as the beloved son, so also we can have his own confidence as sons and daughters of God. So vicariously, as he is right now in heaven, so also are we in this world. Everything that's his is ours. His fearlessness is ours. His love is ours because of God's great love for us. That's how we are perfected in love. We are so assured of God's love for us in Christ that he would save us this way through his own son living and dying and rising from the dead for us. We are so sure of God's love for us that his love becomes our love and it transforms our love. It's not just that our love is is just a response to his love. It's that his own love, Jesus' love, as a response to God as a human His own love is ours. He's in us. We are in him. His love is ours. And that's how we love each other. So we're supposed to have pure love as a response to God, but Jesus is the only human who ever managed that, who ever purely loved God and others. And his response to God is ours. If you don't know what that means, if you don't know what it means that as he is, so also are you in this world. If you don't know what it means that Everything that's true of him is also true of you, and that's how you're right with God, and that's how you live in this world. If you don't know what that means experientially, then then you won't have confidence for the day of judgment. That's the only way you can have confidence for the day of judgment. And you won't love God. uh, You won't love others like God loves. Uh, You won't love like he loves. You won't have confidence. If you don't know what it means that as Jesus is, so also are you. You need to know what that means. You need to know. You need to pray that God would show you what it means. It's the fact that everything true of him is true of us because of his love. And that's what expels our fears. That's what carries us through the judgment. That's what enables us to love. That's what enables us to be able to say anything like what is said in the psalm that we read for our Old Testament reading. Vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate me. For I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. 
Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. How can anybody say that? How can this be our prayer? How can we think to have that kind of boldness in God's sight, in God's judgment? It says in verse 3, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I don't walk in my own faithfulness. I walk in your faithfulness, Lord. The faithfulness that Jesus Christ has and accomplished is mine, and I'm going to walk in that. And that's how I can have confidence in the day of judgment. Walk in his faithfulness. Walk in his confidence. Walk in his love. You have an imagination. This is what you're supposed to use it for. You're supposed to imagine yourself in him. You're supposed to imagine what it means that everything being true of him is true of you. Right? And that's not just to say pretend, you know. Using your imagination doesn't mean just pretend. It's not really true. This is true. By God's grace, this is true. You can really imagine yourself in Christ so that all the good news about him is true of you. Right? What kind of confidence does that bring? It brings absolute confidence in God's love, his infinite, eternal love. Absolute confidence. Not just a sentimental love, a divine love that gives you absolute confidence in your forgiveness, in your, in your freedom from condemnation. And such assurance, such confidence is a gift that you may have at any time because it's not dependent on who you are. Because Jesus really lives forever for you as the vicarious human. And now we have totally different reasons to live and to love without fear. We love because he first loved us. He loved us in this way. So come back next week and we'll remind each other of this good news again. Let me end with a quote from Karl Barth. <clears throat> as truly as God loves us, we may love him in return. It is quite incomprehensible, but we may do it. Let us therefore do it. And I would add, as truly as God loves us, we may love each other. It is quite incomprehensible, but we may do it. Let us therefore do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's not natural for us to try to find our identity and our righteousness and our security and hope and confidence outside of ourselves. It is very natural for those who are always looking at themselves to look for these things in ourselves, in our, uh, in our own being, in our own actions. But we know that there is only hopelessness and fear of judgment if we persist on that course. And so we pray that you would wrench our eyes off of ourselves, that you would teach us to know what it means that as Jesus is, so also are we in this world, that everything that is true of him as the perfect human being is true of us by your grace. We pray that you would help us to celebrate that union in a way that would give us true confidence and assurance that would free us to love, to truly love as you love uh, we pray that you would free us for this love so that, um, not just for our own sakes, of course, but uh, for the sake of those around us, that they would also know your love through Jesus Christ as it's expressed in our love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.